Hebrews chapter 2, starting with the fifth verse, reads as follows. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hand. And you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see things, all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. God's word for God's people and God's people said amen. For a little bit of time that we're together, I want to talk a little bit about the ministry of Christ. Uh, the, the ministry of Christ. Uh, Hebrews is an interesting book. Uh, at one point, many scholars just naturally assumed that the Apostle Paul wrote it, but now that's been a bit under debate. But one thing that is crystal clear about Hebrews, whether or not they are clear on who wrote it, they know it was written by a pastor. And they know it was written by a pastor in a time when people were certainly having a bit of a debate over who Jesus was. Uh, There were some people who believed that Jesus was just a man. A really good man. And there were some people that believed that Jesus was not a man, that Jesus was just God. And there were others who were, which is what we have come to believe and understand now, believed that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. He had to become that which he had to save. So there was a time before existence where he was fully divine and he put on human clothing to become like us. And to become like us, he had to put on this human clothing because he had to become like what he had to save. They say you can't lead, you can't teach what you don't know, and you can't lead where you don't go. And so if you are to trust somebody as a leader, you want them to understand a little bit about what they're trying to do. If you want somebody to take the place of what you're doing, they're going to have to walk a little bit in your shoes. We take that same mentality on the job and in school and in life. We value experience. We value empathy. We value somebody who is able to be just like us. And if they can't be just like us, they at least need to understand us. Amen. 
We don't care how much you know until we know how much you care. Hebrews does not focus on 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 the historical Jesus, some people would call, or the earthly Jesus. It focuses on Jesus as the great high priest, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the one taking our place, the one preventing us from going to hell. We've kind of gotten away from talking about that, and they've even uh, 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 tried to teach us not to talk about that, but that is why we are here. That is why we talk about Jesus. That is why we go and tell other people about Jesus because without Jesus, we are going to hell. We are here, we are here to avoid death, hell, and the grave. So Hebrews comes in and it talks about this perfect sacrifice, this great high priest. And it starts, it starts off in the, in the chapter earlier before you read and it tells us that we need to pay better attention to scripture the bible says in 2nd timothy 2 15 study to show thyself approved a workman needeth not be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth what that means is is we need to spend some time in our word i find it interesting both interesting and disappointing and I, I, they say that your, min, your ministry is where your misery is but I find it interesting and, and disappointing at the same time that there are people from other religions that can quote the Bible better than us Christians I'm not here to try to disrespect the nation of Islam but when the minister comes to convert the minister can quote the Bible better than most pastors the imam is able to talk about Jesus and talk about scripture and tell them where they got it wrong. That's how they get so easily converted because they say you were already Muslim. You just didn't know it. You were, te- you were being taught wrong. And because we don't spend any time in the Bible, we don't understand that. And it's not just Islam. I don't have a specific problem with Islam. I'm just talking about the lack of foundation in our faith. There are Buddhists and Krishnas that are out there that can quote the Bible better than us. They have a better understanding of that. I've met atheists who spend the time every year reading the Bible cover to cover. We have seminary trained atheists, have no interest in Jesus, no interest in becoming a Christian, but they know more about the Bible than the average Christian. So we ought to spend some time studying the scripture. How are you going to call yourself a Christian if you don't know what's in the book? And it don't just fall just on the pastor. You see me for you see me talk for about 30 minutes or less once a week. And we Methodists, so some of us really only come to church once a month on communion Sunday. <clears throat> but um there's plenty of time throughout the day besides a Sunday service. Besides a Wednesday Bible study, besides a Wednesday pick-me-up, where you can spend some time reading the Bible, learning some things that are in there, and learning where it's wrong. Because if you don't have a strong foundation, you can fall for anything. A house built on a, uh, on a fake foundation won't stand. So in Hebrews, he says, it starts off, we have to pay better attention to the Scripture so that we won't be a ship Floating from the harbor aimlessly. 
I do a little bit of traveling and I always pay attention to the captain if I'm on a boat or if I'm in a plane. They plot out their course. They have an understanding of what they're here to do. They have an understanding of what they're here to be about. They plot the chart, they plot their, their chart, their path out so that wherever they're going, they don't, number one, bump into anybody else. And number two, that they can get there in the most effective and efficient manner. But imagine if they did not. Imagine if Broadway Street did not have street lights, did not have street signs, did not have stop signs. Can you imagine the number of accidents that would happen just right out in front of this church alone? We got to stay grounded. We got to, 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 to stay in our book and learn our instructions and plot our course. That way we don't fall for anything. The Bible says that God's word does not return to him void. There are plenty of promises in the Bible. You know, I laugh when they make fun of quote unquote prosperity preachers. Now, I'm not one to say, oh, if you need Jesus or if you need a blessing or if you need something else, I need a $200 line here and a $100 line here and another one there. I'm not down with that. I have a problem with that form of of prosperity preaching. But if you would look in the Bible, you would see that it says you are the head and not the tail. That you are above and never shall be beneath. That you are the lender and not the borrower. So everybody that's preaching about things happening in a good life and having life more abundantly in a God that does exceedingly abundantly above all you could ever ask or imagine. It's not prosperity preaching. They're in the word. We need to be in the word. If we're not in the word, someone can say that person is teaching something that's not Bible when they really are. And you end up hating a Bible-based preacher based on something somebody else said because you didn't read the word for yourself. And the Bible is full of a bunch of covenants and promises and things that they will do and never leave us nor forsake us and give us a peace that passes all understanding and will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. All of that's in the Bible if you read it. It's there. So Hebrews starts off talking about that and then gets on to Jesus and talks about how Jesus was superior to the angels. There was some theology going around and people and angels had gotten pretty popular, almost a little too popular. So this author was saying, well, let me explain to you where angels come in on this matter. Jesus is superior to the angels. He's here. He's God. He created the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then it slides down to later because I'm in the gospel according to John. Later on, it says that the word became flesh and dwell among us. So Jesus was superior. But he decided in order to save us. To, to temporarily vacate a spot. So they come down and take another spot. And so that way, because he participated with us in the suffering, we can participate with him in the glory. It's fitting. His ministry is fitting. The ministry of Christ is sovereign. Let the church say sovereign. 
sovereign, a supreme ruler, especially a monarch. It's also used to be called uh, the term that was used for gold coins. It's possessing a supreme or ultimate power. It's possessing royal power and status. It's most sovereign. It's very good. It's effective. Christ's ministry is sovereign. Christ was created for all the people. Says in verses 5 through 6. For he is not come, he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but he testified, who is man that he is mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? Christ was created for all people. There is no lock on the door. There is no VIP list. If anybody wants to be saved, it's on them. They can come be saved. We spend a whole lot of time trying to put people out the church. Christ was created for all people, including some people we don't like, including some people that ain't our skin tone, including some people that don't speak the languages that we speak. Christ was created for all people. And not only was Christ created for all people, Christ cares for all people. Christ was not on the cross saying that he was sacrificing himself but just for you. Uh, I'm going to die for these people's sins, but you, 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 and you, don't worry about it. Y'all can't come. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It does not put any qualifiers on it. Furthermore, while we attempt to put people out when Christ was created for all people and Christ cared for all people, we don't have a heaven or a hell to put them in anyway. His ministry is sovereign, it's royal, it's effective, it's for everybody. It's our job to tell people about it, but it's not our job to decide who gets in. Amen? So he was created for all people. Christ cared for all people. And Christ commissioned all people when you put all things under his feet. I like that word commissioned. I hear it a lot at my job. It's instruction or duty given to a person or a group of people. It's a group of people officially charged with doing something. It's giving an order or authority to do something. And my favorite definition is to bring something into working order. Uh, Since I work at a site where they are continually building construction and I work in audio and visual engineering, before we are allowed to let somebody else use a room after we build it, it has to be commissioned. And in this commissioning process, uh, a bunch of project managers and engineers and technicians and consultants all get in a room and they go through every piece of equipment in that room. Does this button work? Does that button work? What happens when I push this button? And they work through a list. And then, after they work through that list, if everything is functioning properly and is functioning the way that it was designed, then they are allowed to let other people use that room. 
that process is called commissioning. And then that person's name goes on all the documentation for that room. So Christ commissioned us. Christ went through us. Christ knew us before we were ever born, before we were a twinkle in our parents' eyes. The Bible says in Jeremiah that he knew God knew us in our womb, in, in our mother's womb. He knew us and he formed us and he commissioned us. And because he commissioned us, we are allowed to go out into the world and tell other people about Jesus. And not only are we allowed to go out into the world and tell people about Jesus, there is a signature on ours. There is a signature on us that lets us know whose we are and who we are. So just like I go to a commissioned system and I can see the architect's initials on it and that room is commissioned, people will be able to look at us and see Jesus written upon us. Commissioned. For all people. That is the ministry of Christ. And his ministry is sovereign. And not only is it sovereign. It's submissive. Let the church say submissive. In verse 9 it says. But we see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor. That he by the grace of God. Might taste death for everyone. During those times, there was a bit of a misunderstanding about the Messiah. There were those who were looking for a military savior to come defeat the Roman oppression. There were those who were looking for a military general to fight the people off. That's the kind of savior they were looking for, and they often honored that type of savior. But then once we got past that misunderstanding, we had people that understood Christ to be king, to be the ruler, to be the high priest, and they had a problem with the thought of their ruler, their sovereign king, being executed like a common criminal. They had a problem with the thought of not only their their ruler, their king, being executed like a common criminal, they had a problem with even thinking that Jesus was human. But again, I say Jesus had to become human and share in the suffering so that we could share in the glory. He had to become a little lower than the angels. Here the author was saying before what we read in the reading that he was superior to the angels. His status was higher than the angels, but he decided to become human. He decided to become like us so that he could save us. He decided to take on the punishment for us. He who knew no sin became a sacrifice for us so that he could free the whole world from sin. It was submissive. He humbled himself. He became lower than his status was. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have gotten himself off the cross, but he didn't for us. And not only us, those who are to come and those who are to come after us he did it for us it was submissive so not only was the the ministry sovereign and submissive it was saving 
for it was fitting for him for whom all things and by whom all are all things bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering goes on further to say but he who both sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed of calling them brethren saving he saved us we just have to make the decision I like the example that uh, the bishop once gave about our, our forms of grace you know being Methodist we think about grace in stages and we have this provenient grace the grace that covers us before we understand it the protection everything that gives us before we even knew what was going on and it's like a house so that provenient grace is like the porch we're not in the house but we get some of the benefits of the protection of the house and, and then there's the moment that you decide to follow Jesus the moment you decide to become saved that's the justification you step into the house you cross the threshold it's just but a moment but that moment makes all the difference it's the difference for being inside the house and outside the house it's the difference for being in the elements and or protected from the elements it's a saving grace and it was fitting It was fitting for him. And it's interesting in the Greek, the, one of the words that they say is in, in terms of sacrifice is also uh, founder. What does a founder do but set something for us to follow? Organizations pay homage to their founders. Whenever there's some sort of disagreement about what's supposed to happen or how things are supposed to go, they ask, well, what would the founders have done? Founders get a place of honor. Just like Jesus gets a place of honor as the captain of our salvation. He went before us and did things that we wouldn't have to do. Looking at 2.8 again, it says, you know, there's, there's rebellion and sin. Sin caused us to forfeit our control. Big old $5 word I learned in seminary is called theodicy. There are people who, who have a problem not necessarily with Jesus or, or the church, but they have a problem with coming to God because of the evil that happens in the world. They want to know why would God allow something like this to happen if God is all-powerful. If God is all-knowing, if God is, is, is everywhere, why would a loving God allow something like this to happen? And my answer is twofold. Number one, just because you have power doesn't mean you wield it all the time. We are all capable of doing a lot of different things, but because we do it doesn't mean, that, but because we are capable does not mean we have to do it. Second thing is, is I allow the elements to influence things and the elements sometimes outside of what we're doing can influence something and make it bad. It's not evil, it's just evilly influenced. Allow me to provide an example. I like steak. When my mother was pregnant with me, she ate a steak every day not only did she eat a steak every day she ate an entire watermelon every day and I mean cut it the long way 
flip it over, get a fork and some Morton salt and go to work every day. So I love steak, but I hate watermelon. Don't like the taste of it. Don't like the taste of it. And, 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 and that partly is because my mother continued to eat a watermelon every day after I was born. And I used to have to go get a watermelon every day. And I used to have to pick a watermelon every day. And if I picked a bad watermelon, I was in trouble. So I can tell you what the stem looks like, how it's supposed to sound when you knock on it, all of that. But I don't like watermelon. But some people do. A little bit of a tangent, but back to evil. If you enjoy steak or if you enjoy watermelon, that's fine. You can eat it and nothing happens. But if you set that steak or that watermelon out for too long and it spoils and you try to eat it, you'll get sick. Is that steak bad? Is that watermelon evil? No, it was influenced by some of the things around it that made it happen. So I am not necessarily, uh, when we talk about certain things being evil and why did God do this and why did God do that, sometimes God did not do that. Furthermore, sometimes it's our fault. Let me prove it, let me prove it, let me prove it. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1. First book of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill all the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over it, the flesh of the sea, over the birds of the air, and on every other thing that moves in the earth. It's in your Bible, right? Everybody, we all, we all saw that together. So we worry about the evils of the world. We worry about the things that are going on, but the things that are going on that are evil are because we are asleep at the wheel. It's not God's fault certain bad things are happening to us in the world. It's our fault. Right there in the Bible, God said it, put the world to work, talked to Adam and said, you run it. This is what you asked for. You run it. And that is often what is happening now. We blame God for stuff that people are doing. We have free will. We have our own minds. We have our own decision-making capabilities. So we can't blame God. We cannot spend all our money and then blame God for being broke. There's rebellion. We forfeited our control. We've allowed things to run roughshod over things. But the good part about the saving ministry and the good part about this rebellion that's been experienced is that there's redemption. Again, Christ died on the cross for everyone. He took your sins and my sins and everybody else's sins and he took them to the cross. So our debt is paid. 
And because our debt is paid, we are able to, as in that example, had go into the house and experience the benefits. Then the text goes on to say in verse 11, for he both sanctifies those who are being sanctified and are one. For the reason he is not ashamed to call us brethren, saying, I will declare your name to the brethren. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. So we were on the porch of the house. That's that prevenient grace. And we walk through the door and make that decision to follow Jesus. That's the justification or the justifying grace, as they call it. But now we're in the house. I don't know about you, but most houses I go into have rules. And that's what the sanctification is about, is following the rules to constantly improve yourself. That's what the sanctification is about. It's not about being mean to anybody. It's not about calling people out, but it's about following instructions. Anytime you want God to move in your life, there are going to be some instructions. Before God blessed Abram, he told him to get out of his country and to go to another land. When the prophet was helping the widow, he asked for jars. There's always instructions. Even when Jesus performed miracles, there were instructions. He would tell them to scoop up dirt off the ground or he would tell them to bring him water so that he could turn it into wine. Anytime there was some sort of miracle that happened, you had to follow instructions. You have to follow instructions on your job unless you don't want to keep your job. Even if you work for yourself, I'm pretty sure there's some state regulations you got to follow. There are some things that the customer will put forth that you want. There are instructions you have to follow. And how else will you know the instructions unless you stay in the word? So this ministry of Jesus is sovereign. It's submissive. It's saving and it's sanctifying. But it's for us. And it's for our betterment. It is for our good. It is for our renewing. It is for our salvation. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come.